Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Pew Bible in front of you. Page number is usually on the slides. It's not today. You can find it. John's Gospel, chapter 18. Also, I wonder if you're a visitor today, if, if passing the plate around seems like something that maybe they would have done in your grandma's church. But do people still do that, you know? Well, yeah, we do do that. We do it for a couple of different reasons. But one of the reasons that uh, I enjoy the passing of the plate, even in our own family, is because it gives our kids an opportunity to practice giving to the Lord Jesus. Christmas time comes around, they get some money from grandma, what do they do? They take a third of it and they save it, they take a third of it and they give it to Jesus, and they take a third of it and they blow it on candy and toys. <laughs> Hopefully in our giving we can get to the place where we, we balance our budget in that way. Okay. This morning we're going to be talking about kangaroo courts. No one really knows where this term comes from. We're not even really sure where the word kangaroo comes from. One popular story goes something like this. An explorer in Australia, speaking to a native, pointed at the animal and, and said, you know, what is this? To which the native responded, kangaroo, which meant, I don't understand the question. Thank you. <laughs> so there's that. The idea of a kangaroo court may have come from the days of the California gold rush in, in the wild, wild west where there, there was lawlessness abounding in the land and where these miners would create their own court systems to adjudicate matters amongst themselves. Another possibility is that kangaroo courts, and I like to think that this is the one because it's really fascinating, they were a kind of theatrical mock trial that would be held in theaters and in the 1900s in like small town communities in Texas for the purpose of entertainment. So that the townsfolk, they would get together in the theater and they would pretend to be big shot lawyers and judges and they would hold these mock trials just for fun on a Friday night. We know for a fact that later the term came to be used when speaking of an ad hoc court proceeding in prisons and jails. Inmates would create court systems within the system in order to settle disputes amongst themselves. In our own day, the term has come to be simply defined as this. It is a mock court in which the principles of law and justice are disregarded or perverted. Or said another way, it is a court characterized by irresponsible, unauthorized, or irregular status or procedures. To simplify, you can think about it like this. A kangaroo court is uh, basically, any time there's a trial situation where the outcome is determined and known before the trial even begins. So a modern example of this can be found in the murder trial of Emmett Till, a 14-year-old African-American boy who was killed in Mississippi in 1955. Around August 28th of that year, Till was, quote, kidnapped, beaten, shot in the head, and had a large metal fan tied around his neck with barbed wire and was thrown into the Tallahatchie River, end quote. Now, this case should have been an open and shut case. There were multiple witnesses. The defendants not only admitted to the murder, but they bragged openly about the murder. And yet, after merely a five-day trial, the all-white jury came back with their verdict in exactly 
67 minutes. Not guilty. Later, while being interviewed about the trial, one juror was asked, how is it possible that the jury was able to come back with a verdict so quickly in such a serious trial? To which the juror responded to the reporter with a wink and a smile. We'd have got done sooner, but we had to take a break for some soda pop. That, my friends, is a kangaroo court. In this morning's sermon, we are going to see Jesus put on trial. And the court proceedings that will sentence him eventually to death are no better than those of rural Mississippi 68 years ago. But it didn't have to end this way for Jesus. You remember from last week's sermon, of course, that Jesus chose not to resist arrest. He chose not to flee his captors. He wasn't trying to hide. He wasn't trying to flee from the cross. He could have done that. He had disciples who were willing to fight for him. He had angels who were willing to rescue him. And then, as we saw when he spoke the I am word and everyone fell on their back, he even had the complete power of God within his very nature. So he could have, if he so desired, shut down these illegal and wicked proceedings at any time. But as we saw last week as well, it was necessary that the Christ suffer these things and die. And so the proceedings begin. I have two points for you this morning. Point number one, Jesus and his accusers. Jesus and his accusers. Point number two, Jesus and his disciple. So let's begin by looking in chapter 18, verse 12. We read, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Now this is one of those little little parts of scripture. It's just a little historical detail. It may not weigh on you very much. It may not impact you significantly, but friends, you should really stop and consider what's happening here. The eternal and infinite one, the the word, the second person of the Trinity, the one who cannot be bound by time and space, but has chosen to be bound by time and space. He has submitted himself to be bound by his own rebellious creation. The one who has all authority, and indeed the one who gives all authority, is now under the unlawful authority of his enemies. Let's keep going. Look at verses 13 and 14. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest this year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So the first thing that we see in, in this trial of Jesus is that Jesus is taken to Annas. Now, in the text, we're told that Annas is the father-in-law of the chief priest that year, Caiaphas. We're going to come back to that father-in-law part. But what you need to know as we, as we get started is that uh, Annas and Caiaphas were both serving as high priests during this time. 
both of them were serving at, as high priests in Israel. So like in Luke's gospel, for example, in Luke chapter 3, verse 2, Luke writes this. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, of Annas and Caiaphas. Now this is a problem. How, how is this possible that there are two high priests serving in Israel? According to the law of Moses, only one high priest may serve in Israel at a time. Just think about it like this. In the same way that we don't have two mayors in the city of Decatur or two presidents in the United States, the nation of Israel did not have two high priests. They only had one. So what's going on here? The answer is simple. It's corruption. According to the scriptures, the high priest must be appointed based on several qualifications that we're not going to really dig into this morning. But what we will get into this morning is that the two high priests both being present serving at the same time is a sign of corruption. It's commonly known amongst those who study such things that during the days of Jesus and in Second Temple Judaism in general, the priesthood in Israel was up for sale. Remember, Israel had come to be conquered by Rome, and under Roman rule, uh, the, the Roman rulers would appoint the three wealthiest priestly families to choose the high priest to serve the nation of Israel. And, and this appointment from these three wealthiest families, it was not based on the biblical qualifications. It was based on questions of money and politics. But it gets worse. You see, Annas is serving as a kind of high priest emeritus. Technically, he's not actually the high priest, although you can tell by the way that Luke writes, everyone essentially views him as the high priest. Well, what does it mean to be a high priest emeritus? Well, emeritus is, is like a title given to someone who has retired, but who, for the sake of honor, has been allowed to retain that title honorifically. So uh, a, a biology teacher teaches biology at State University for 30 years, Right, and then he retires, uh, but they want him to come back and teach some some classes and do some seminars, and they want to honor him. Okay, well, he's going to be the professor of biology emeritus. Now, this is not a title that was specifically given to Annas, but it's basically how he's functioning. He still has this title. He still has a role. More than that, he still has authority. He has more authority than he should have. Although he is long retired, he still holds significant power in Israel. How much power does he hold in Israel? When the false Messiah, which is what they think Jesus is, is arrested and put on trial, they don't take him directly to the legitimate high priest. They take him to Annas. He's kind of like the godfather. He's the man in the shadows. He's the one who has the influence. He pulls the levers of power. You might almost say that Caiaphas is serving as sort of the puppet high priest. This leads us to another aspect of corruption. Uh, according to biblical law, the high priesthood is supposed to be passed down from one high priest to his son. And, and it's common that sometimes there, you know, maybe there isn't a son to pass down to, and there are provisions in place to, to fix that. But the thing is, Caiaphas did have sons. Caiaphas had, excuse me, Annas did have sons. Annas had five sons, and Annas had passed the priesthood down to each of his five sons at his own choosing. And then after he got done with his fifth son, 
he passed it down to his son-in-law. This is nepotism, right? Caiaphas got the hookup from his father-in-law, the one who was really in control in Israel. Now, listen, the the point that I want to bring home here is quite simple. If you're like, man, history is so boring. All right, here's where we're going to bring it home. Stay with me. This entire system was corrupt. The entire system of the Levitical priesthood in the days of Jesus was utterly corrupt. The whole system was broken. Now listen, I know that talking about questions of systemic anything in this day is fraught with controversy. But friends, listen to me. You do not have to be a disciple of Karl Marx And you do not have to ascribe to critical theory or any variation of it to understand that in a fallen world, sometimes entire systems are broken and need to be torn down and rebuilt back up into something more healthy. And that is certainly the case with the high priesthood in the days of Jesus. And guess what? That's exactly what Jesus does. He comes as the final perfect high priest, and he does what none of the priests could ever do, He exercises his priestly duties in perfect righteousness and justice. And then he remains the high priest forever in the the order of Melchizedek. And he does away with the earthly, flawed, sinful priesthood and replaces it with something infinitely and eternally more glorious. He is even now standing, interceding for us in heaven as our great high priest. I got two little application points I want us to to make here. Number one is when systems are broken, people get hurt. And we could just, I mean, just go through example after example. I mean, in the, in the realm of politics, you can consider uh, Lyndon Johnson's, if anybody even remember, kids, ask your parents afterwards or Google it, Lyndon Baines Johnson. He was, one, he was the president once. He was able to steal his Senate seat due to an utterly corrupt system of Texas vote swapping. And this was a system that everyone was well aware of and quite content to play the game with. And that hurt a lot of people under his leadership. In 2008, the United States experienced one of the worst financial crashes in our history. Why? Well, because the mortgage industry had been corrupted from top to bottom with subprime lending practices. Or, to bring it a little closer to home, in the post-Civil War Reconstruction era, particularly in the South, Tens of thousands of black Americans, again, largely in the South, were kept in some form of bondage or servitude due to a legal system that was just utterly unwilling to give African Americans the freedoms that they were promised under the law. The examples could be multiplied, but I'm sure you get the point. When a system is entirely broken, the people who are within that system get hurt. In this morning's text, we see that when the priestly system is broken, the one who gets hurt is God himself. And yes, just to reiterate, I know that much of the rhetoric of our current culture leads us to be suspicious of any kind of systemic injustice talk. But friends, this is where biblical balance has to win the day. Yes, it's true. We do live in an age where cultural Marxists play the systemic injustice card way too much. They are just crying wolf all day, every day. But that does not mean that the Bible does not have a category for systemic injustice. So let's not be more controlled by the raging debates of our day than we are by Scripture. Let's let Scripture form our categories. 
The second little point of application I would like us to see here is this. And it's, it's really simple. We just need to do things the way that God says in his word. Right? Now, we're not in ancient Israel. We don't have a high priesthood. So how does this relate to us today? Well, this, think about the church. Right? We need to build the church and appoint people to positions of authority in the church according to God's good design, which he has communicated to us in his word. So, like, think about, like, what are the offices in the church? There are basically three. Some people say two. Some people say four. Let's talk about them. You have pastor, elder, same thing. You have deacon, right? Yeah, I, I'm actually a fan of having missionary and evangelist as a category for an office in the church. Some people would say it's not in the church. It's being sent out from the church. But you, you get the general idea. And there are some people who would even want to say that church member is an office because you exercise a formal kind of authority in the church. Fine. But that's about it. If you find any other title, any other position of authority in a church, you can be sure that there is some kind of corruption at play and that there is some kind of chaos that is going to ensue. So, friends, like there's no such thing as a cardinal. There's no such thing as a pope. There's no such thing as an archdeacon, not to pick on my Presbyterian friends, but there's no such thing as a pastor emeritus. There's no such thing as a pastor who is a pastor for life. If you were a pastor at that church and the members of that church voted to appoint you as a pastor and you're serving them faithfully, great, you're a pastor. If you step down from being a pastor for bad reasons, for good reasons, it doesn't matter. You're no longer a pastor. If you're a pastor serving in our church like Grant Miller, who's about to go on sabbatical, while he's on sabbatical for a year, he's no longer a pastor. He's going to have to be voted back in as an elder in our church. There is no such thing as a lifetime pastor in a church. Okay. So the point there is it's pretty simple. Corruption will always come closely behind churches and, and parachurch ministries just sort of creating categories that God has not given us. Now, let, let's get back to the story. Look at verses 15 and 16. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So what we see here is that after the initial arrest, at least two of the disciples followed Jesus to the courtyard of the high priest where his trial was going to take place. Now, the two disciples are Peter and an unnamed disciple. Most commentators think that this unnamed disciple is John. I, I think I, I agree with them. Uh, not entirely sure, but just for the sake of this sermon, I'm just going to go with it as being John. If I'm wrong, you come up and let me know afterwards. So Peter and John, they follow Jesus to the courtyard of the high priest, which you stop and think about it. Is a pretty bold move, especially for Peter. You guys remember what happened like an hour ago? Peter cut off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. Just look back at chapter 18, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. So Peter attacks the entourage of the high priest, but then follows Jesus right into the 
lion's den where all of these men would be. This is classic Peter. It's bold, not particularly bright. So Peter has followed Jesus to the courtyard, but we encounter a problem. He's stuck at the door. The bouncer won't let him into the club, right? He he can't get inside the courtyard. He wants to be inside the courtyard. Inside the courtyard is where he might hear something about what's happening with his master and friend. But then we're told that the other disciple, because he knows the high priest, he has the hookup. He's allowed to get inside, and when he gets inside, he pulls some strings with the maitre d', you know. Hey, I got a buddy. Bring him in. So they... They get Peter in. He goes into the courtyard. Now in this situation, John and Peter, they're kind of like a family in the waiting room of a police station after an arrest, right? They can't really do anything. They can't affect any change, but they just want to be close. There's just something about being close that makes you feel like maybe I could help. Maybe I could do something. Maybe if they release Jesus, I can be here to greet him. Either way, they want to be as close to Christ as possible. Now, you'll notice that in verses 18 and 25, we're told that Peter is warming himself by the fire. Now, we're told that Peter is warming himself by a charcoal fire. I'm not going to elaborate on that this morning, but I want you to just like mentally register, like Sean is making a point to point out that it's a charcoal fire. That's going to be really important in a couple of weeks. But Peter is warming himself by the fire. And I think this clues us into another aspect of the corruption of this trial. Uh, This interrogation, this trial, it's being held at night. Now, Now see, there's no oohs and ahs from you guys regarding the level of corruption that that would convey. Because maybe it doesn't immediately strike you that this is abnormal. Trials are not held at night. The only kinds of trials that are held by torchlight are the kind that corrupt officials want to carry out away from the light of day, away from the light of accountability. There's a reason why darkness in Scripture is so often connected to sin and rebellion and transgression. There's a reason why when criminals do things that are bad, they do them in the night. There's a reason why when you sin, you try to do it in the shadows. And it is by these fires in the night that Peter sits warming himself. And it is also by these fires that Peter is going to carry out his threefold denial of Jesus. But we're not going to get there yet. Let's keep focusing on the trial. Look at verse 19. (coughs) The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and teaching. Now, what's really interesting here is that the high priest is directly interrogating Jesus. This is also a miscarriage of justice. You see, friends, according to Jewish law... The defendant in a trial should never be directly interrogated. According to Jewish custom, the only people that may be interrogated and questioned in a trial are the witnesses for or against the defendant. You can interrogate the witnesses all day, but you may not interrogate the defendant. Now, Jesus is pretty sharp. He knows a thing or two about a thing or two. 
and he's always two steps ahead of his enemies, which is why I think he responds the way that he does in verses 20 and 21. Look there. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. So why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Hmm. Jesus is doing two things here. Number one, he's refusing to play by the rules of this kangaroo court. Instead of saying, oh, oh, okay, about my teaching, yeah. Okay, well, I I did say this in that context, and I can see why you would think that that was problematic. But actually, if you understood my point of reference and what I was really saying there, it would... Oh, and my apostles, here, if you only understood this, then it would make more sense and you wouldn't be as angry. You wouldn't be upset. You wouldn't be concerned. He doesn't do any of that. He says, listen... I've been beating the same drum for three years of my public ministry. I've done it in private. I've done it in public. I've done it publicly in the synagogues, and I've done it publicly in the temples. Everyone has heard what I've been saying. It's surely gotten back to you. There's really no reason for you to be questioning me about this. There are like a thousand witnesses that you can call and just ask them what I've been saying. So... Maybe let's stop playing this little game and just get on with what you're going to do. That's the first thing that Jesus is doing. The second thing that Jesus is doing here is he's actually offering a procedural challenge. You see, Jesus knows that he should not be interrogated directly in in this trial. So he basically says to Annas, why do you ask me? You should be calling witnesses. That is, you know, if this whole thing is legitimate. As a quick aside, I do think it's worth noting here two things. Number one, that there is nothing unchristian about knowing your rights and understanding the way a rightly ordered legal system should work. And even below, like, just a legal system, even, like, on your job, if there are policies and procedures in place, especially as it pertains to, like, the way that you can exercise and communicate your faith, it is not at all unchristian of you to know the way that those things are written so that you can exercise your faith appropriately. Having said that, the second thing I want us to notice is that this story shows us that knowing our rights and even standing up for our rights is no guarantee that justice will prevail in a fallen world. Now let's look at what happens next in verse 22. (coughs) When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is this how you answer the high priest? And friends, this is what fighting injustice will look like in a fallen world. If you point out corruption, you may very well end up paying the price for pointing out that corruption. Now look at verse 23. Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? So what Jesus is doing here is he, he, he turns to the officer that has hit him and he basically says, listen, 
You're supposed to be an officer of the court. You're supposed to be on the side of justice and righteousness. I'm the one who's on trial. I'm the one who is ostensibly guilty. And yet here you are violating the law, acting unjust towards me by striking me. And for what? For simply pointing out the unjust proceedings? And friends, this too is what it looks like to fight injustice in a fallen world. An injustice happens to you or a friend or a family member or a neighbor, and you point it out and you pay the price for pointing it out. And then maybe you muster up the courage to point out the injustice of the way that they've responded to your critique of their injustice, and, and on and on we go. You know, what's interesting is that this exact same, well, not this exact same scenario, but almost this exact same scenario played out in the book of Acts with the Apostle Paul in Acts 23. The Apostle Paul was also carried before the high priest to have to answer for his teaching and his disciples. But something different happened with the Apostle Paul. As he was bearing witness about his ministry, he lapsed over into saying something insulting towards the high priest. He was struck for doing so. And then it was pointed out to him that his insult of the high priest was actually a violation of Scripture, Exodus 22, 28. Now, what I would do if I was Paul in that situation is is I would say, it doesn't matter if I insulted him. This whole thing is a kangaroo court. This is all unjust. You're focusing on the wrong things. That's not what Paul does. Paul says, you're right. Scripture does say that. I should not have insulted the high priest. And then he carries on. He repents, and then he moves on. This is so strangely encouraging to me, you know? Because what you see with Jesus, you know, it's like, man, that's a pretty high bar. He's before his unjust accusers in this unjust trial after an unjust arrest, and the way that they're handling him is corrupt and violent, and and he just handles it perfectly. And I'm like, whoo. I don't know that I'd be able to handle it that way. But then you have the Apostle Paul, who, though he is an apostle, is also very much human. And he gets put in basically the same situation as Jesus, and he handles it very well, but he doesn't handle it perfectly. He slips up. His emotions get the best of him. But what does he do? He doesn't go, oh, I suck. I'm the worst. I shouldn't have even tried. No, he just recognizes that he failed in some small way, and then he carries on what he was doing in the first place. Yeah, that's just, that's just encouraging. That's, that's what is going to happen with us, friends. We're going to try to do the right thing. We're going to miss the mark by a little bit. If that's ever pointed out to us, fine. Acknowledge it, repent, and then let's just get on doing the right thing. Okay, so as we wrap up point one, uh, we should really see the tremendous spiritual significance of what is playing out here in John 18. The perfectly just Son of God, the one who has never sinned, who has never taken advantage of anyone, who has never done any wrong, he is suffering grave and terrible injustice at the hands of his enemies. And the trial has only just begun. Friends, by the time we make it through the trial, before all is said and done, Jesus will not only suffer injustice, but he will also suffer cosmic justice. You see, friends, the perfectly just and righteous Son of God will be put to death on a cross as a penalty. As a penalty for sins that he did not commit. 
He went to the cross and he paid the price for sins, your sins, my sins, the sins of the whole world. And he did it to save us from the consequences of our sin, namely wrath and hell. Now, here's why I want to bring this home to you for your like experience of, of life on this earth and how the gospel will impact that. Friends, whether or not you experience perfect justice in this life or nothing but injustice in this life, you should know that on the last day, you will sit before the perfectly just judge of the universe. You will enter into his courtroom, and you will be surrounded by a cloud of many witnesses. Now, unlike the court proceedings that are taking place here in John 18, the courtroom of heaven that you will enter into will have a perfectly just judge. The proceedings will be perfectly fair. The one who will be examining your case and interrogating your soul will be holy, holy, holy. He won't need you to present evidence because he knows all things. He won't have to examine the case because all of the information about the case is already in his mind. And what we see in this passage is that Jesus is unjustly condemned by sinful man so that he might save us from the justice that we so richly deserve at the hands of God. What man meant for evil here in John 18, God meant for good. And not just general good, your good, Christian. On that final day, when you stand before the great judge of the universe in his courtroom, the only reason that you have any hope of being forgiven and pronounced as innocent, even though you are guilty, is because Jesus, who was innocent, will be pronounced as guilty. Earlier in our sermon, we said that the definition of a kangaroo court is any trial where the outcome is known before it even begins. Now, it's true, the outcome of our trial is already known in the mind of God, but it is not at all certain for you. The reason why you're still here, living and breathing, is because God is gracious and merciful, willing to give more time to help you prepare for that trial day. And here's the good news of the gospel, and it's the best news. It's, it's the distinctly Christian answer to the sin problem that plagues us all. All you have to do to prepare for that court is turn away from your sins and trust in what Jesus already did. That's all you have to do. Anything else, you will be pronounced guilty. If you think, I'm going to spend the rest of my life getting ready for that final judgment day by doing as many good things as possible and avoiding as many bad things as possible so that I can stand before the judge and he'll see that I deserve to be in heaven, that's the exact wrong answer. You can't not do enough bad things. The first time you sinned and committed an offense against a holy and righteous God, you were forever guilty in his sight. No amount of good works can ever balance that ledger. Your only hope is to trust in Christ, who lived a perfectly righteous life in your place, and who loved you enough to give himself to save you. If you're a Christian, let me tell you how this trial is going to go. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be amazing. You're going to close your eyes one day on this earth. I don't know how it's going to happen. Car accident, stroke, 
maybe you'll be watching the office and then all of a sudden you wake up and you're standing before the, he's going to say, I don't know if you should have been watching that much office, but you're here anyways because we're saved by grace. And you're going to stand before the high throne of heaven and the king will be there with his book open. And you will see in that moment that you were more sinful than you could have ever even possibly imagined. And you will come to understand in that moment exactly what you deserve, which is death and hell forever. And then the, the high king of heaven will look down on you and you will expect on his face to, to see severity and disappointment and anger and wrath. Like a father who's pulling his belt off, you will expect to see hell staring down the barrel. But if on that day you are a Christian, because on this earth you repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, when you look up at the high king of heaven and when you see his face, you will see nothing but joy and love and satisfaction. He will, to your great amazement, say, this is my servant with whom I am well pleased. And you'll go, what? How is that possible? And you'll fall to your face and you'll cry out to God and to the lamb who was slain forever and ever. Worthy is the lamb who was slain for paying the price for my sins that I could never pay. And then you will enter into the joy of your master forever. That's a good place to end the sermon, but we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. That would be like the perfect high note. You know, uh, a lot of times when I, I preach the gospel, I try to preach the gospel every Sunday morning. Because I know that not everyone here is a Christian. Even people who are here who think that they're Christians, they may not be Christians. And uh, I always try to present the gospel in such a way that makes sense. But friends, that doesn't make sense. That's mind-blowing. That's a gospel that's beautiful. Even if it doesn't make sense to you, even if you don't know that that's true, don't you want that to be true? Isn't that the story that you hope is true on the last day? Point number two. Jesus and his disciple. So in point one, well, let me say it like this. In point two, we're going to examine uh, Peter's infamous threefold denial of Jesus. And for the sake of time, we're just going to jump ahead to the, the end of the story, to Peter's third and final denial. Look at verses 25 through 27. <coughs> now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ears Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. So if, if the heartbeat of point number one was the contrast between Christ and his accusers, then the heartbeat of point number two is the contrast between Jesus and and Peter. So just consider this irony. As Jesus stands alone in the cold before his accusers, Peter 
stands with his friend, John, comforting himself by the fireside. As Jesus faces down his enemies with complete and utter confidence, Peter cowers in fear in the courtyard. As Jesus stares down the high priest in a room full of angry armed men, Peter can't even stand up to the interrogation of a little servant girl. And Jesus is willing to give up his life to protect his disciples. Peter is willing to protect his own life at all costs, even if it means denying his master and friend. You know, as I was studying the text for this week, what, what really blew my mind about Peter's denial was how quickly his denial followed on the heels of his willingness to fight for Jesus. It's like within an hour or two. I mean, we don't know the exact timing. 30 minutes, two hours, but it's like back to back. One minute he's ready to fight, got his sword out, ready to kill, maybe even be killed. The next minute he's cowering, denying. How is this possible? How is such a rapid shift possible in the heart of this man? Well, I think that there are a few factors at play here. I think one reason that Peter is so brave one minute, but so fearful the next, is because he no longer has a sword. When Peter was brave for Jesus, it was because he had the ability to fight for Jesus. What this means is that Peter's courage was, in large part, owing to his own strength. His courage was tied to his control of the situation, or should we rather say to his own perception of control of the situation. But now that Jesus has quite clearly given the command, no swords, no fighting, no violence for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, Peter has lost the illusion of control. He has had to sacrifice and abandon his own strength. What this shows us, I think, is that Peter's confidence was always more in himself than in Jesus. So that leads me to wonder, what is my sword? That leads me to ask you, what is your sword? What are you placing more confidence in than Jesus? What is the symbol of your own strength and power and control that makes you think, oh, as long as I have this, I'm going to be okay? Is it money? Ooh. Is it your career? Is it your intellect? Yeah, even if I lose all my money and even if I get fired, I still got the old thinker. I can, I can, I can make my way back. Maybe it's your religion. As long as I'm a part of this denomination or a member of this church, as long as I believe this theology, as, as long as I do these good works, as long as I feed the poor, as long give this much money to the church, I wonder what it is that makes you feel safe and in control. What in your life do you think of like, man, as long as I have this, everything's going to be okay? One more question drawn from this lesson. What will you do if Jesus takes that sword away from you? 
I told a pastor friend of mine that if I ever write a book on the ministry, it will be called Driven to Pray. And I like that title because uh, even after all these years in the ministry, first uh, on the mission field and then as a pastor, my first instinct in difficult ministry situations is to trust in myself. When I find myself in an impossible situation that should lead me to place all of my hope, all of my trust, all of my confidence in Jesus, my first reaction is very often like that of Peter. I just grab my dinky little sword and I try to face down the, the enemies of God and the battalions of Satan, the world and even my own sin, and I wave my sword. I got this. We're going to fight. But I don't got this. And neither do you. Now here's the thing about the love of Jesus. It's always exactly what we need. What that means for me is that in my ministry, he always takes my sword away from me. Always. And I hate it. Ugh, I hate it. Just let me have it. I feel safe. I feel like I have control. I feel like I can do something here. I don't like feeling vulnerable and exposed and powerless. I don't like having to put all of my trust in you. What if you let me down? What if you fail me? Sean, I've never failed you. I know, but what if you do this time? Just let me keep my sword, please. And he goes, listen, I know, I know, I know this is going to hurt. I know this is going to be scary, but you have to trust me. This is going to be better for you in the end. And I cry and I fight and I talk to other people who I think are going to tell me the truth. Yeah, Sean, that's, that sounds like Jesus. That's the right move. Do it. Believe it. Oh, fine. Have you ever experienced anything like that in your walk with the Lord? This spiritual dynamic is not unique to Peter. It's not unique to me. It's not unique to you. It's the common experience of all of his disciples. It seems like this is a, a good place as any to maybe spend some time picking on American Christianity. American Christians have every resource at the ready. I really came to understand this when I was a missionary in the jungle and we had nothing. We had no money. We had no resources. You know, I was like out there with a, a Bible and, and like 85% fluency in Spanish and just a lot of prayer and hoping that the Holy Spirit would come through. We'd be on a little rinky dinky boat going up the Rio Ayaga, which is like off of the Amazon River, right? We'd be in this rinky dinky boat with a motor that is going to break down for sure, right? And we're going to this village and getting ready to go preach the gospel and we're just barely moving. And then flying past us and guys i'm not kidding i'm not joking on a literal hovercraft american missionaries they just blow right past us almost knock us over they get to the village before us they're it's like oprah and presents for you and medicine for you and da -da -da for you and they're taking pictures and they're and they're sending it back home to their missionaries and and i show up and i'm like okay so open your bibles with me and let's just Let's just talk about the gospel one more time. 
right? The American church has every kind of sword imaginable. We have the money, we have the resources, we have the power, we have the knowledge, the seminaries, the libraries, we have the whatever, you name it, we have it. Which means that it is all too easy for us to trust in our swords more than we trust in Jesus. And we do. We do. And my fear is that many in the American church are going to look like Peter one day when Jesus comes and takes our sword away. We're out there now, aren't we? We're fighting. We're swinging. We're doing it. So brave. But what if one day when he takes it away, we find ourselves repeatedly, fervently, quickly denying our master and friend? I think this is a good opportunity for us to look at the saints globally and to see the way that their faith looks. What does it look like to be a Christian in China, in North Korea, in Iran, in Pakistan? They have nothing. They have no swords. They have no power. They have no control. They have no ability to fight. And yet, Jesus gives them the victory. Maybe if nothing else, this is just a good reminder to pray for them. The famous Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, he became famous for exposing the Soviet gulag system to the Western world. And as he was writing about these, the terrible atrocities in these labor camps and in the Soviet system in general, uh, Solzhenitsyn, he, he wondered, he ran a thought experiment. He, he asked himself, if all of this terrible evil could be done away with by simply getting rid of all the bad people, and here's his response. If only it were so simple. If only, there were evil, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and then destroy them. But the dividing line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Solzhenitsyn saw through his experience what God tells us plainly in his word, namely that all of us are evil. We are sinful. We are rebellious. If that sounds shocking to you, that's just because uh, you live in a culture which kind of talks a lot about Christianity but never gets down into the nitty gritty of it, right? Like the Bible doesn't say that you're fundamentally a good person. And that you just have some problems that you need to work out. The Bible says that we're all fundamentally bad people. And the good that remains in us is only by God's grace because he's preserving it there. But Solzhenitsyn continues. He says it like this. He says, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts the line separating good and evil shifts inside of us and it oscillates with the years it oscillates it shifts it moves the good and the evil in our heart through the years maybe with the months maybe with 
the days. Maybe even by the hour or by the minute. I mean, just stop and think of it. How can a man who loves his wife make a vow of perpetual faithfulness to her one minute and then turn around and throw it all away with a mistress in the next? How can a mother love her child more than life itself and then choose drugs in a lifestyle of promiscuity that will ruin that child? How is it possible for someone who professes to be a Christian taste the reins of heaven in the body of Christ one moment and then feast on the filth of this world the next? How is it possible that out of the same mouth pour forth blessings and curses? Out of the same heart live reverence for God and thoughts of utter blasphemy? Friends, Peter is the answer to that. In Peter, we find an archetype. And Peter, we have a pattern for all of humanity, including you and me, those who have been called by Christ and added to his number. We are fully capable of championing the name of Jesus one minute and then being utterly embarrassed by it the next. Did you hear what our brother Dom prayed in his prayer of confession this morning? In the break room, there it is, your opportunity to share the gospel. Somebody's going through something. This is your chance. You've been praying, Lord, give me a chance to share the gospel with my coworker. And then you, you go to say something, and you don't. Why? Well, you know why. We don't have to spin that out now, but not, there's no good reason for that. right? Your, your, your family gatherings, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Lord, give me a chance to share the, the gospel with my neighbors, with my coworkers, with my family who are going to be... And then maybe you had the exact right opportunity, and then all of a sudden you were ashamed. You were embarrassed. That's exactly what's happening with Peter here. The only difference is is that Peter is denying Christ because he is risking his life. You denied Christ in that moment because you, you didn't want to be socially awkward. In Peter we find a pattern of all of humanity including Christians like you and me. So allow me to close out our time together with one very simple application. No person in this room is above denying Christ. No one. Not even me. Christ told his disciples... When they said, Jesus, we'll never leave you. We'll we'll never abandon you. We'll always be with you. He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And friends, listen. I know the human heart. I know that there are some people in this room sitting here right now, and your hearts are filling with pride. You are so proud that you cannot even say it. You think, this guy stand up saying, I'll I'll never deny Christ. That's crazy. I would never do that. And here, let me just, you know, litigate this court. I have examples. I'll give you testimonies. You said, oh, we didn't share the gospel in the break room. Well, guess what, buddy? I did share the gospel in the break room. And, oh, the example about people coming over for Christmas dinner. Well, guess what? I stood up on the tabletop and I stomped on the turkey and the cranberry sauce and I proclaimed the gospel. Friends, you are doubly at risk. You are doubly, you're like Peter. 
Peter who said, I'll never, if everyone denies you, I'll never deny you. Peter, I'll pull out the sword. I'll fight for you, master. That's you. The Apostle Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. So, brothers and sisters, trust not in your own strength to remain faithful. Trust in Jesus. He is the keeper of your soul. He is the guardian of your testimony. And even though you have already denied Christ, and in the future you may deny Christ, he can still keep your soul. Do you remember what he prayed for Peter? He said, yeah, I know he's going to fall, but guess what? I prayed that the Father would keep him, that Satan would not sift him like wheat. Trust in that. Don't trust in yourself. You are weak. You are weaker than you know. But Christ is strong. And he is stronger than you know. So as Luke makes his way to the piano, I want you to consider the lyrics that we are about to sing together. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold, so he must hold me fast. And then here's the good news. Here's the declaration of the gospel. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Let's sing.